Hi everybody, this is Steve Hargadon. It's Tuesday night, September 8th, 2009. And it's another episode of futureofeducation.com. I had to pull myself away. I've been listening to the recording of the last interview I did with Cheryl, which was in December of 2006. And gosh, how fun that's been to re-listen to that. We're certainly glad to have you here tonight. Our guest is Cheryl Nussbaum Beach. We're going to be talking about educational social networking. Cheryl, do you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. We're really glad to have you here. Okay, so just so that you know, coming up, conversations.net and futureofeducation.com. Uh, tomorrow night, Jane Nelson, the author on uh, Parenting 2.0. On Thursday night, Lucy Gray leads a panel on global awareness. Should be terrific. September 15th, uh, Anne Galeran from the e-twinning program in Europe. We may have to change the time on that. I got an email from Anne, but we'll let you know. September 17th, Michael Horn is starting a virtual school series. Michael's one of the co-authors of Disrupting Class, and they're doing his company is doing a series of reports, white papers on virtual schools. September 22nd, John Seeley Brown. So funny, Cheryl, you had just mentioned John Seeley Brown in the recording when I had to stop and pull away. October 6th, Dennis Lipke on Big Picture Schools. October 20th, the folks from SRI on Educational Social Networking again. And then November 3rd, for pure pleasure, Tim Westergren from Pandora. We are going to talk about the changes in music licensing and those sorts of things. Um, but that should be a fun event. Still finding dates, but committed are Clay Shirky, Doc Searles, Dana Boyd, Tim Magner, David Thornburg, and Esther. Okay, so... Wow, what uh, a great lineup. It does sound like fun, doesn't it? Yep. Okay, so um, futureofeducation.com is sponsored by Learn Central. If you haven't been, it is a social network. It's a lot of fun. Please come in and join us. I'm the Tom, the MySpace Tom of Learn Central. So uh, you'll get a welcome from me, and you should have a lot of fun in there. If you haven't been in Illuminate before, this is your first time. It looks like with this small group, we've probably got a lot of pros, but just to make sure you know how this works. Um, there is a participant box where you can see the other people who are in the session. Uh, below that participant box, you can raise your hand if you want to ask a question. With a group this size, that's not going to be difficult. So please feel free to go ahead and ask a question at any time. Um, below that, depending on the layout of your screen, is a place where you can, a chat box where you can send messages. You can send messages to each other, but do know that any private messages are not, in fact, fully private because the moderators can see them. Uh, if you do decide that you're going to ask a question, you're going to need to click on the microphone button in the audio section, and that's at the bottom of this white whiteboard uh, picture that you can see. And then to the right is the whiteboard, and I'm going to give you a chance right now to play with that whiteboard by giving you permissions to actually modify that map. So look for the little wand with the red star at the end to the left of the map. Click on that, and then click on the map and let us know where you are. Okay, so I'm not seeing South Korea yet, but we've definitely got somebody from South America. Feel free to uh, give a shout out in the chat as to where you're from, and what time it is, and maybe what the weather is like. Okay, so I'm going to shift this forward. 
Thanks for being here tonight, Cheryl. Sure appreciate your coming back. Excited. So could you start by giving us a little bit of background on uh, who you are and what you do? You you messaged me today. You didn't feel like you were uh, a heavy hitter in this arena. Well, you are a heavy hitter to me. And so could you talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of work you've done uh, in education and what's brought you to where you are now? Thanks for the heavy hitter. I, I guess I know a little bit about communities and about um, collaborating and connecting online. But when I said I wasn't a heavy hitter, I meant because you have such an impressive lineup always on here. And But I'm excited that we have a small intimate group so that we can learn together. Sandra, you're exactly right. It's um, it, you're the the uh, 999 is uh, pretty interesting, and I guess it's, you can tell us if it's going to be OK, because a lot of people said interesting things would happen today because of that numerology. Of course, the Beatles warned us long ago. Um, a little bit about me, I, uh, what I do. I wear a lot of hats, actually. I blog over at 21st Century Collaborative. It's uh, 21stCenturyLearning.typepad.com. And um, from the very beginning, when I created my first blog, uh, I told you what I was going to blog about. It was about community. I, uh, so I spend a lot of time with 21st Century Collaborative traveling around, doing keynotes, workshops, uh, work with a lot of nonprofits all around uh, the shifting learning landscape and uh, 21st century educational reform. Then I also have the pleasure of working with Will Richardson. We co-founded Powerful Learning Practice, and that is a um, professional development uh, company that's based on delivering a blended professional development that's job embedded PD over time, where we take uh, teams of teachers, professional learning teams, who co are combined into a situated community of practice cohort online and uh, connect them with other people from all over the world, working on helping them understand how to build digital footprints, how to operate as a professional learning community that will scale to the rest of their school, and also to understand global situated communities of practice. So that's pretty cool. Um, in my spare time right now, what I'm doing is finishing up my dissertation. In fact, I just went today and had a uh, meeting with my dissertation chair who has approved my, uh, my proposal and my topics, which you can kind of guess what it's about. And so that's been a two-year process of fighting, um, not really fighting, debating with different chairs. And I've actually got one now that I think is going to fit just perfect. And so I'm very excited about that and moving forward. And uh, then I... I uh, have been in a remodeling situation with my home, and so I've been spending a lot of time um, decorating and remodeling and, and getting this place fixed up. So it's a busy life, but it's a great life. So you mentioned Will Richardson. Who's that? <laughs> Some guy that has a ponytail that I saw somewhere, and he's a lot of fun, though. Um, Will, uh, it's very interesting. The work that I've been doing for about seven years around um, professional learning communities and situations weighted communities of practice um, seem to fit really well with some of his visionary ideas and the ways that he sees uh, connected learning. And so when we brought the two ideas together, it has made a um, very powerful experience. And we're having a great time. We're co-learners in the process. And uh, each year it gets better. And so he's a lot of fun. So it's felt to me from the descriptions of the work that you and Will are doing that it really is following a model of trying to engage the leadership at the top. Is that accurate? I'm sorry. Say that again to me, Steve. I was, re I was going back in the chat. Oh, sorry that's OK. That. It seems to me that the, from the descriptions that I've heard of the work that you and Will are doing, that you're really 
interested in getting to the leadership at the top? Well, we do do some boot camps, um, which really looks at working with leaders and helping to give them the vision. But actually, the cohorts in the work that we're doing is um, with some educational leaders, but mostly with practitioners. And the idea is, though, I think where you probably get the leadership at the top piece, is that powerful learning practice is a champion building model. What we really want to do is um, build the social fabric capacity of a certain number of um, team members who then learn by doing. They're learning about and build, constructing knowledge together in a very inquiry-driven um, professional learning community. And then by building their capacity with a very intentional focus on helping them know how to scale or spread what they're learning to the rest of their school and beyond. So it's a, it's a very cool experience. Um, I'm enjoying it probably more than a lot of our participants are. But um, I'm I can't tell you how I've been shaped as a learner. And uh, I guess in powerful learning practice, that's one of the things that we talk about all the time is that we didn't call it powerful tools practice. We called it powerful learning practice because it's really about learning first, teaching second. And um, so it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a ton about community um, that I didn't know before with the different kinds of things I had done prior to that. And uh, I'm really glad I'm involved in it. So it was really fun to listen to the interview that we did two and a half years ago, uh, in part because you were so optimistic about the uh, kind of uh, the ways in which learning practices were baked into some of the Web 2.0 technologies. Are you feeling as optimistic still as you were then? Absolutely. You know I'm an optimist. That's the way I see things. In fact, even more so now because I think for a while developmentally um, out in the networks and out in the communities, we um, were really trying to gain a sense of the why. You know, people were making a compelling case for why over and over and there was new people coming in. But it took a while for us to really construct that knowledge, I think, and come to a place where we understood why this was important, um, it, why now especially. And so I think we're moving into a space where people have gone past the why. Uh, I can't tell you, workshop after workshop after workshop that I do with 21st Century Collaborative, superintendents, administrators, everybody can talk about the why. And I think it's real important now that we start to take a very close look at um, what is the how. How can we make sure that we have sound pedagogy and that the focus is on the learning and that what we're trying to do is really reform the profession from the place of educators reflecting with other educators, deep reflection um, in an inquiry kind of approach, and then being able to take what they're learning, develop action research kinds of projects, and apply that, what they've learned from that, share the results in a very transparent way, and then start to um, inform classroom practice. And I think that's where we're going to start to see the real change. And I think as, um, you know, that I think that the vibe that I'm getting as I'm out there is that we're ready for it, that people really are developmentally ready to start moving in that direction. So I guess I'm probably even more enthusiastic than I was. You know, when we talked before, I told you it wasn't about the tools, never have felt like it was about the tools. The tools are going to change. Tools don't impress me. It really is about the learning, and it's about relationships, and it's about people. And that's why um, community is such an important thing. So that's fascinating. And, um, but you are having to, to show the ways in which the tools provide for the learning, right? Well, 
not so much. Um, kind of the community does that. We kind of have a policy that it's um, tools, not rules. And so, in the community, as the communities start to build, you know, when you when you when you set up and you plan for a community of practice and what you're going to birth, and and what we do with powerful learning practice really is communities. I guess since we're talking about that, we'll go in that direction. It's not networks. We do push people out to the network, and we talk about networking literacies. But we make a commitment to each other within the community. It's usually about 100 to 120 educators in a particular community or cohort to grow together over time. And so we make to improve over time. Our domain really is to, um, to get a grasp and understand how to do this and how to improve our practice and what are the needs of the 21st century learner. And, and tools come up, but they really come up in an authentic context of when they're needed. They're not something like we go through you know, this tool, that tool. We don't talk about blogs with these podcasts, oh my. Instead, we really talk about what is it that you're trying to teach? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? We look at things from a very strength-based perspective, like, all right, we're all in this room. Each of us have particular giftings. Let's look at what we got, what we brought to the table, and then what is it we want to build together? OK, now that we've figured that out, what tools are we going to need? You know, We don't want to be hammering in nails with saws, so what is it that we're going to need? And if I don't know what it is, then maybe somebody else in the community does. In fact, I'm counting on it. And um, so it's not really we take a tool and then show them how to use it with the appropriate pedagogy. Instead, we start with pedagogy. And we look at sound pedagogy, what it looks like, what it is we're trying to accomplish, what it is we want the student or the, um, or the educational faculty to be able to know and do when we're done with whatever, the, whatever it is that we're doing. And from there, we are able to pick and choose tools. And sometimes they're not technology. Sometimes they're other things. Technology does support the learning, especially in a community atmosphere, in a network atmosphere. But, um, but it's really the focus really and truly, Steve, is just a lot more on building the relationships and finding out what the talents and the possibilities are in the groups that are there, and then helping to strengthen that social fabric, helping them to understand how to take those strengths and use them to evoke uh, meaningful change. And because it is a powerful learning practice is basically a change model. It teaches you how to manage change. And sometimes that change is around 21st century form, but you could also use that in a different aspect. Um, rules, not tools. Yeah, ba I mean, it was basically tools, not rules. That's, that's what we, that's kind of like our byline. And what we do is that instead of coming up with a lot of different um, constructs or rules that you have to follow within the community, usually if somebody wants to do something or they're trying to figure out how to accomplish a particular task, that's when tools come in. People will think about, oh, um, you know, if you use this particular tool, then you'll be able to do what it is you're trying to do. And uh, I think that's, that's the kind of cool thing is that, and people usually have examples where they've used it. I was in a community, one of the, we're leading a uh, netbooks uh, community in Australia right now. And I noticed in one of them, Brian Crosby had come in as uh, one of our experienced voices. And so somebody was in there talking about Google Docs and saying, did you know you could actually share them and that people can start to uh, work together on Google Docs to accomplish that? And Brian says, absolutely. And then, you know, this is, this is an example of that. And so tools will come up like that. But uh, the tools aren't ever intentionally the focus or the topic of, of what we're doing. So it sounds like maybe there's been a progression. And let me see if I can define it and if you agree. Because when we talked before, you said that uh, you were birthing bloggers. And probably all of us felt a little bit like we were sort of focused on the tools. Then, then the why starts getting constructed. And then once the why is constructed, it feels like the tools limit the ability to talk about the pedagogy. So 
it, it comes back to, to the learning practices. But is all of this still made possible by the uh, sort of uh, foundation of the web? Has it been eased by that? Uh, could you have been doing this 10 years ago? And if so, how would it have been different? I'm glad you asked that question. There's a couple things uh, filtered in there. But um, in terms of what I've been doing at 10 years ago, yeah, I was. And I'd hoped that I'd get an opportunity to share that. I was thinking um, a little bit about what is the background that I've had in terms of collaborative, communicative, networking kinds of technologies. And is it easier now? Heck yeah. You know, it's mad crazy easy now. We have the knowledge management tools that allow us to be able to connect and collaborate with people around the world without having to work too hard. But there's probably some of us in this room right now that remember 10 years ago where you could make these kinds of connections. It's just that you had to do a lot of work ahead of time. There wasn't a, things that were ready-made out there, and there certainly wasn't a lot of people who were playing in the sandbox. I remember back um, in my, I guess it was the late 80s when bulletin boards first came out and you could first get on the web. Being connected with that, I was teaching at Valdosta State University at the time and used bulletin boards to help my um, students that were studying children's literature to be able to connect with people, just regular uh, people from around the world that were online at that time in bulletin boards who could share children's literature from their country and different countries. And they actually um, built a relationship with them and then were able to, uh, a lot of them sent actual books, children's pieces of children's literature, and we did a literacy fair for the community um, based on what they had learned from all these people and the artifacts that they had sent and shared. So it was very powerful learning, connecting and collaborating in that space. And then I remember I came on with uh, Classroom Connect. And Classroom Connect, we did a lot of wonderful things in those days. Um, David Warlick and I both were presenting for them at that time. A couple of other people from the web, you probably recognize the names. And um, I managed a lot of listservs. I remember there was a science listserv. And, and there, you can build great community using listservs. Um, we were connecting, and we were sharing ideas, and we were, sh we were getting to know each other, even with that archaic kind of tool that doesn't have the dimensions that we do now with the profile tools and the videos and the pictures and the things that make it much more easy to build trust. Um, also, uh, Full Circle. Um, back, I think it was Nancy, I'm not sure, but back in the day there was a tool that was called Full Circle that I actually used with um, the, the teachers in my school at W.T. Cook Elementary, and we got into discussions. The administration stayed off of it, and all the teachers were able to start to build community outside their classrooms because we, so many of us were just tied in that silo of teaching and weren't able to connect. Um, I worked with uh, Terry Dozier with her Center for Teaching uh, Leadership, uh, Teacher Leadership, and we developed listservs and community came around that. And then I found um, the Teacher Leaders Network and was able to help build community there. It was the most powerful relationship, inquiry-driven type community I had ever been a part of. In the early days, we did it with a listserv, and then we moved to uh, a Drupal site that's been created. And the relationships that formed there, the way that I learned, um, it was all it was never about the tools. We weren't like, ooh, ah, about the listservs. It was about the relationships. Tapped In came in about that place, and I lived at Tapped In. That's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned how. Tapped In is, um, I like to tease, and BJ, don't get mad, but I like to call Tapped In Web 1.5. Um, it was definitely cutting edge at its time. It's mostly text-based. Um, but I set up all kinds of communities there, mostly around um, mentorship or electronic induction. All my pre-service teachers from William & Mary um, 
connected with teachers, seasoned educators from around the world, and we built community there, very strong community. From there, I played around in Facebook for a little bit, and then found Ning, and uh, have been using Ning for community. So, you know, I think it was, yes, I birthed bloggers, but, and, but even in that, Steve, um, that was people helping students, pre-service teachers, find their voice. And for me, the, the focus that I gave it even in the classroom, if you go back and look at the wikis and the transparent way that I put the courses online, it was, even then, it was about developing their voices, helping them to be able to share, publish, so that they could connect with people, and then out of those connections, hoping that there was some collaborations. I may not have given it that kind kind of um, uh, framework, but it truly was what we were doing when we were birthing bloggers. I knew that it was important for people to get their voices online and that it was by doing that that they were going to be able to get uh, connect with subject matter experts and really get the kind of deep um, reflective learning that was going to help them grow in their practice and, and becoming more of a professional. So I love that history. And, and I love the thread here and I love all, you know, all that's taken place. Uh, one of the things that you said in that previous interview was that it was hard to figure out how to tie student achievement to this, this new opportunity for participation in voice. Can we shift quickly to students for a moment and, and ask, is that still an issue for you or how do you address that now? And so looking at, um, I'm, I was finding the teacher leaders uh, website, the question, ask me the question one more time, I apologize to make you do that. I only do this three times, then I have to bump you right, off the meeting, right? Then I won't, then I won't right? make you do it anymore. It's because I was multitasking <laughs> for Ben. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, as we all know, there's, oftentimes there is not actual multitasking. It's just task switching. Okay. So, uh, are you ready? I am ready. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Okay, I know it was so about students, and you were saying that before I thought that it was a little bit more difficult to help students find their voice online. Well, no. The, qu the, the question that you were sort of grappling with at the time was, how did you tie student achievement? to the, the, these new opportunities from the tools. So I'm guessing that that's also sort of being refined and rethought a little. And, and currently, how are you feeling about the transition from the use of um, participative technologies and the ability to gain voice when it gets brought to the student level? And, are, and what are the current challenges and what are the current opportunities? Hey, you know, it's it's like that magic question that I get asked over and over and over again about, well, Ken, do you have any anecdotal or any hard research that shows that this does increase student achievement? And the answer to that is, and I've just gotten to the point where unashamedly I just say no, um, because the true answer to that is, is that in most things that happen in the classroom, there's too many variables. So the fact that I'm, in most of the communities I work with, I don't work with students, what I do is I try to help teachers own um, these skills, these strategies, these concepts. I help teachers understand how to um, build, to co-create content to build community. I help teachers understand how to do action research. And obviously, when teachers are together, research does show when they're involved in, in inquiry-oriented professional learning communities, when there's deep reflection, when they come back and they're doing job-embedded learning where they're able to apply what they're learning in a job-embedded context over time rather than just attending an in-service and coming back, that when those kinds of things are happening, it informs classroom practice. They're more effective as 
a teacher and when, they're, when you have teacher effectiveness, it's going to increase student achievement. But can we pinpoint it down to saying X caused Y? No. And I don't think you can any more than you can does an effective leader, principal, administrator, superintendent impact student achievement. We know that good leadership does, but it's such a, there's so many variables and, um, and uh, constructs involved that I don't think you can actually, you know, there isn't a measure to show that. In terms of participatory culture, um, I really think, and Will and I both talk about this a lot, that because we are living in a time um, where, the, where there's very low barriers for participation that, that students are creating and that they are producing and that they like doing that, that it's really important that we, in the classroom, uh, understand that creating the top of the new blooms, while it's incredibly important, it doesn't stop there. That really our role as educators, if we truly want to prepare kids to be productive citizens in the 21st century who will be living out a great deal of their life online, that what we need to do is to be modeling for them how to make safe, ethical kinds of connections, find their subject matter experts, chase their passions, and being able to align with people where they can get just in time, anytime learning around the things that they need to learn. You know, Papert says uh, something that one of the videos I was watching of him that I just think is so powerful. He says, you know, we've got to let go of this idea that curriculum is that we learn a certain thing at a certain time and replace it with the idea that what curriculum really is is that we learn what we need to learn when we need to learn it. And so by teachers owning it first, they're able to model that or give it away to their students. We, with Powerful Learning Practice, we really push for teachers to be learners first. Um, we, we tell them on day one, we don't want you to leave here and change anything about the way you teach. We want you to change everything about the way you learn. Because what we want them to do is really own these concepts, these strategies, these pedagogies, and even the tools before they try to give them to their kids. But then, because of the participatory culture, we want them to model them for the students and then help the students create their own communities of practice, help the students create their own personal learning networks where they're able to pull in people that are um, going to be able to help to refine their skills, to develop their giftings, their strengths, their passions in the areas that they're interested. You know, a passionate kid, a passionate learner is a turned on learner. And so if you can uh, work through a kid's strengths, if you can work through a kid's passion, they're going to achieve excellence. You can teach a kid to read, to calculate, to do any of that by operating through learning to be, um, learning to be scientists, learning to be mathematicians, learning to be journalists, much just as easily as you can teaching them about science, about reading. And so if you really want to see uh, a kid that, that is engaged, that's really going to um, excel and uh, achieve high level student achievement, then what you need to do is equip them with these kinds of skills where they can chase their passion and they can learn the standards-based content that they're going to be tested on through their passions and then um, and teach them how it's not just about sharing, that it's about once you share connecting and that's done in a network space and then communities fall out of those networks to where then they start to collaborate and then from collaboration they actually move to collective action. 
My philosophy is, is that I would like to see communities help teachers co-construct content curriculum around social justice issues. And it, rather than us framing things in individual disciplines where we have math, science, social studies, that kind of stuff, I think it would be a lot cooler to look at dilemmas or social justice issues, marginalized populations, things of that nature and teach kids to read and write and calculate and think and do scientific method all under collective action kinds of things. I mean, if we did that, just think of the legacy we'd have as teachers and how we would truly be leaving the world so much better than we found it by the kinds of projects kids were working on now. You know, I saw a cute little video somebody shared the other day that that showed that, you know, it, we keep telling kids, you know, can't, you can't wait, you're going to go to kindergarten, you're going to go to kindergarten, and they get to kindergarten and you say, hey, now it's first grade, and then, you know, now it's second grade, you move them all the way through, hold on, you're going to go to middle school, hey, now you're in high school, it's, it's college, and then it's graduate education, and then they get the job, and they get the bonus, and they finally make it, and they get to the top, and they realize they've been hoodwinked, that this was really about participating in the moment. And you know, John Dewey told us that, that you know, it's about, <laughs> Dave Matthews says, the future is no place for your better days. And so it's really about helping kids be authentic, be important, be passionate, and do things that matter now, to make a difference in the world now, not wait till a certain time that we're preparing them for, but rather let at least 50% of their time in the classroom be authentic and important about what they're interested in and what they need to know now. So I think I saw some clapping during that uh, long and delicious soapbox Sorry, moment. I was a soapbox, no, sorry. I'm glad, it was really fun. Did I hear echoes of John Seeley Brown and the learning to be kind of thing? Yeah, John Seeley Brown, there's some other people that have really looked at that particular, dis looking at dispositions, beliefs, and attitudes, because any time we're going to reculture, we're going to have to look at that kind of, uh, we're going to have to look at how to change dispositions, beliefs, and attitudes, and a lot of that is by letting kids experience firsthand. But, you know, if I was going to pick, you know, they talk about if you could have lunch with anybody or if you're going to pick one person that you'd want to, you know, take a retreat with to just sit at their feet and learn, for me, it would, one of those people would be John Seeley Brown. Yes, me too. Okay, so I know we, we still, I, we've promised that this is going to be about social networking, and it has been. We'll get there more directly, but before we do, I want to ask uh, at least one or two other questions that you've sort of raised here, and one of which is that I know that you have a passion around marginalized communities, and that you yourself have a, uh, a background in history related to transient homelessness kind of issues. So. How are we doing in the three years since you and I have talked? Are we better? Are we worse? And I want to raise the possibility that, in fact, maybe some new challenges have arisen because of the power of these tools to transform. I think that we haven't changed. I think that there is, an at least from my perspective, if I was going to be less optimistic, it would be in this arena, that I think uh, these tools, these technologies, and the power they have to connect with people who can help to uh, marginalized populations to come out of the circumstances that have conspired against them, um, that because they can do amazing things for kids who um, might not have mentors anywhere else that they could find online, because um, it levels the playing field, it uh, appeals to the storytelling kind of learning style that a lot of marginalized kids uh, find themselves or marginalized adults have, that we are doing a really lousy job of 
not using those to their best benefit to help those kids climb out of the circumstances that have conspired against them. And uh, if there was one message I would give to uh, teachers everywhere, it would be that, you know, when you think about why this is such a high learning curve, you know, this stuff's changing all the time. It's a lot of time. Good grief. You know, I don't have enough time as it is, and now you want me to set up a community, or you want me to take my classroom uh, structure and change it into a community structure, and who's got time for that? That requires me to unlearn and relearn. And, and I tell teachers all the time that I actually think it's a moral imperative. I think that um, if you truly are going to make a difference in your most at-risk learners, you know, affluent kids are going to get what they need from their parents outside of classrooms, but that if we really want to help these kids have the capacity to be competitive or to be successful, you know, Howard Rheingold and Smart Mob says that the true digital divide in, <coughs> excuse me, as we move into the future is going to be that between those who know how to connect and collaborate and um, build things together online and those who do not. So if we want to continue to keep the, the chasm between the haves and the have-nots, the best way to do it is to not help all kids be empowered with these technologies in our classroom. And so, you know, I think I don't think to answer your question, Steve. I don't think we've done a very good job at all. I think people still um, throw the time, play the time card, and I understand uh, it's going to cause us to restructure. We are going to need to truly transform the way we're doing things in education, and um, a top priority needs to be these kids and uh, and their parents that need to have these skills the most in order to just come up to speed with uh, the rest of society and and to be able to be to climb out of, of what's worked so hard against them. Um, I won't go into my personal story now, but you know, I've told it to you, that if it wasn't for technology and education and some other things that happened to me spiritually along the way, that I wouldn't have climbed out. And uh, I think I'm testament to the fact that there's a lot of kids there that if we would just empower them with the ability to do this, regardless of their parents or regardless of their, of their past, if we can help them understand how to determine their own future, um, that they would do it and we would have uh, um, we wouldn't see some of the tragedies that we see now in kids that just simply aren't armed. They just don't know how to, to make their life better. So I think I've told you this, but I gave a keynote address to the New England Board of Higher Education on uh, using Web 2.0 tools to help um, low-income students get to college. And that was the topic they gave me. And I was intrigued by the fact, I spent a fair amount of time on it and really thought about it, and I was intrigued by the fact that there wasn't really any follow-up with me afterwards. So I'm, I'm wondering about this, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what might be a very practical step to take? And I'll quickly tack on to that. I think you and I had talked about the difficulty for transient kids or homeless kids because oftentimes they're taught to hide that in their classes. And we thought about the value of having some kind of a network where they created a relationship with a caring adult that followed them no matter what school they were at. Is that a good first step? Or have you thought of something that could actually be done where, where we could make a difference? Yeah, it, it's an excellent first step. But if, we, if you really want to see a difference, just turn your classrooms into communities. Um, look at your whole classroom yourself too as a co-learner and that you create a community of learners who are able to learn through their passions and, and study things that they're interested in and learn to write the four kinds of sentences and the cloud structures and all that within the context of what they're interested in. And I think that if we did that and just treated everybody in a community kind of capacity, we'll see those 
kinds of issues. We won't have to think, okay, let's do this for this kid because everybody would be equipped at the same time. However, I love what Sarah said. I don't know if you can see it where she whispered in the chat, um, Steve, but one of the things that she talks about is that, you know, there are a lot of kids online who use, who have figured out how to use these tools that teach each other how to rise above their circumstance. And, um, and you know, just think, if we were to empower kids to be able to understand how to get the information they need, how to connect to the people they need, how to connect to the services they need, that um, they would be able to self-help. And they would be self-directed in the way that they did that. And they would be able to help other kids. So I, I think a, it's an important thing. That's a stunning comment by Sarah. Uh, I'd love to drill down on that. Okay, so, um, and again, my last question comparing our last interview to this one. You had had a concern or a thought that different kids were succeeding, that different skill sets now were of value, and that the kids having the hardest time were the ones who had been on sort of the doctor-lawyer track. Still the case? Yeah, I see it all the time. I was doing some interviews in Alabama, um, I guess it was probably about, uh, maybe about eight months ago. And I went from school to school. We had chosen, um, just to refresh your memory, we did four years of work in Alabama around 21st century learners and basically took teachers through um, communities of practice that helped them to gain the skills they needed to become uh, 21st century schools, um, whatever whatever meaning you want to give to that. But for us, it was you know, being able to um, utilize the te emerging technologies with embedded in the instruction so that kids were able to be reflective, develop student voice, and you had appropriate pedagogy. And so after three years of that, we um, in the last year, we chose 10 schools to be 21st century demonstration sites so that if you went to those schools at any time and you wanted to see 21st century learning, you could visit those classrooms. So part of what I did in the research when I was looking at those schools was to um, interview some of the kids. And over and over again, what I saw is that students who were successful in school, who had um, done well, absolutely did not want to change the rules to the game. They had already figured out how to play school. They did it well. They scored high. And their parents didn't want you to change the rules to the game. But yet kids who had um, not done as well, who were really being able to um, use these tools in a multimodal way that was making um, learning very sticky for them, were they able to do, because of the elaboration, were able to do deep recall. and. Um, retaining things that they never had before. And for the first time, really, their self-efficacy was increasing. And so their grades were increasing. And these were the kids who had uh, not done as well. I have, it's funny because teachers will say, well, I can't do that with my most at-risk kids. You know, we can't, you can't set creative kinds of learning objectives up like that because, you know, it takes a lot of practice to be able to get these kids to be able to master so they'll do well on these standardized tests. And what I see over and over and over again, it's just the opposite, that you're, um, the the uh, kids that are have been tracked for the doctors and lawyers and the more gifted kinds of things that they really like school the way it is and that they really don't want to see this shift and that it's the kids who have always struggled that um, are drawn to it the most and uh, if you if you surveyed the kids in your school those of you that are listening I think you'd probably find the same thing. Um, the, I had a kid tell me who did an internship with me he, in his senior year. He said, you know, I don't want 
this to happen because I don't want to have to participate. I'm really good at just being a passive learner and sitting and listening and letting my teacher go home tired um, and making good grades on the test. I don't want to have to be able to uh, work really hard and create a lot of things and you know be able to choose my own passions. I don't even know what my passions are. And I think that's because we've kind of drilled it out of them. I was just putting a note in the chat that the, what you've described does fit very well with uh, disruptive technologies um, model of Clayton Christensen, where the the, the new ch the new changed vehicles become adopted by those who have been marginalized in the past. Yep, I I agree. I think that um, we saw it with. I'll just give you another comparison. As we I, we saw it with phonemic awareness and whole language. You know, I remember that um, there was a whole lot of kids we were teaching with with uh, using phonics and uh, decoding, and there was a whole lot of kids that were in the uh, LD classes who just couldn't learn to read. And whole language became hot, and people started using some of the whole language strategies, and we're tying it to all kinds of creative kinds of context and getting kids excited about their passions. And then you saw those all those kids that were in those really struggling with reading, all of a sudden they're reading. But then those rooms where they were having to do one-on-one -on -one mentorship with uh, kid, LD kids or kids who were struggling with reading filled up again. And who were they? They were the kids who needed the uh, decoding skills first. And that if we could just realize that in education, it, you know, we always want to make it an either-or kind of um, situation and that it's different learners need different kinds of things. And if we would just come to terms with that and realize that um, uh, we're going to see whenever we change up the way we do things in a classroom, whenever there is a shift, that you're going to have the group that kind of hasn't done as well rise to the top because that is their learning style. That's the way that they process information best. And so that's why a community structure in a classroom works better because then you can, uh, if everybody is trying to master, if you set the objective, because you still do as a teacher, and if you set this objective and you say, okay, this is what I want the kids to be able to do when we get through with the learning, and then you require every kid in the class to achieve mastery of the objective and prove that to you in the exact same way, then some kids are going to work through their strengths and some kids are going to work through their weakness. Where instead, if we allowed, um, we said, this is the objective, this is what I want you to know and be able to do at the end of this particular study, and then we let kids pick and choose how they were going to prove mastery of that objective through their passions, then everybody would win. Everybody would be able to you know, be able to learn through their preferred learning style. And why that's so foreign, why it has to be an either or in education, I, I just don't get it. Okay, so let's make the promise shift to social networking. And, and let's do it by allowing you to make the caveat and the clarification. So I say social or educational networking, what do you, what, what are you calling that? Um, educational social networking is a construct. It's where you're using social networking kinds of technologies, anything that allows us to connect and collaborate with other people in an educational setting. Um, what I'm interested in, and I guess it would fit under the large umbrella of social, educational social networking, is I'm interested in some things that I think are missing. I think it's a new construct and I'm not sure what it is. I think that personal learning networks are a very powerful medium in which people are using networks and to have access to learning objects and to have access to people as resources, that it's all about networked resources. And so we know that and it's very powerful and it's an important piece of social networking, educational social networking. And then we have 
all the work done by DeFores and Eckers and Horde and those that have to do with professional learning communities. And the professional, the traditional professional learning community starts with a professional learning team. It has builds to a community. It's around inquiry and, and using data to inform instruction. And it all happens in a face-to-face -face capacity in a school. And it's very important. It's building community within that face-to-face -face structure. And it's incredibly important. And then we have these situated learning communities, situated communities of practice, where we come together because we have this the same, a common domain that we want to improve our practice over time. We build a community, which is, in my mind, very different than a network in that you have to be in a community. If you're in my community, I know you're in my community. If you're in my network, not necessarily. You might be learning from me, and I never even know you exist. But in a community, we make a commitment to each other to improve over time. And so we have these communities of practice, we have these COPs, we have these PLNs, professional learning networks, and we have these PLCs, professional learning communities. And somehow, I think there is a place for all of that to come together. And if I was going to determine what educational social networking would be, I would want it to be the place where we're able to use deep relationships, inquiry-oriented, reflective practice, um, and the emerging technologies that allow us to connect and collaborate mad crazy easy with people around the world to develop a new kind of learning that the tools informed what we were doing and the, the, and the learning informed what tools we needed and that together we saw education kind of morph into a place that there's a new term that's got COP, PLN, and, uh, and PLCs all mixed together. I think um, in uh, the new book, Digital Habitats, they take a stab at it. They try to look at, you know, how is how are the technologies informing and changing communities, learning in communities, and learning in educational social networks. And I think they um, also take a look at, you know, how are how does that work in reverse. And um, so it, that's kind of interesting. But um, so to me, I guess educational social networking is. If we're talking about the networking, it's using emerging technologies to create networks where people then can connect and collaborate and share. And then out of that networking, that those connecting pieces um, falls out communities who decide to take it a step further and see what, through our giftings, what we can all build together. What can we co-construct together that's going to make us better at our craft at what we do. So I know you haven't seen Learn Central yet. But I'm, I'm really going to be curious to see if your understandings here could help inform our progress in building that as a tool. And I'll, I'll connect with you on that later, because I actually have some capability to, to, you know, to have say in that regard. But you and I both have some experience with Ning. And I always have to laugh um, about Will and Ning, because Will was such a skeptic re regarding Ning. And, and now it seems like maybe that's been overcome, or in part. So what are the positives of what you're doing with Ning, and what do you wish they had that they don't? I think Ning, um, it has its strong points, and it, has its, it really has its pitfalls. And that I think that because Ning was created as a whitelist platform to meet the needs of anybody who wanted to create a community, because you know you can have communities of memory, you can have communities of passion, you can have communities of practice, you can have community, you know, communities of place. You know, there's lots of reasons that you would need a set of tools to be able to um, collaborate and connect and to build um, artifacts and create um, knowledge management and that kind of thing. So I think the reason that you see so many things lacking in Ning from an educator's perspective is because it wasn't created with educators in mind. Um, 
you have, what basically, as far as what should Ning have, that depends on what it is the community wants to do. So the very first thing you want to do in a community is you want to sit down and you want to figure out your purpose, why you're there. And then from there, you want to decide, okay, now that we know our purpose, what is it that we want to accomplish? And if, if it is that we want to meet on a regular basis to share, then it's going to be one tool set. If it's that we want to share resources, and if it's that I want to really be able to focus on building trust, because in a, in a virtual space, trust building is very different. You know, in, in our face-to-face -face space, I, I come to trust you because we, um, I see you take off your coat. I see the pictures of your kids on your desk. I watch you complain when you got a ticket on the way to work. And over time, we build a relationship and I trust you. In a community space like Ning, it would be awesome if there were some tools that would help with that trust building piece, tools that really helped me to be able to see very transparently your um, digital footprint, because once I look at your digital footprint, I'm able to get to know a piece of you that probably it would take months and months to get to know. Um, so you know, tools like that. Co-construction, if that was something our community wanted to do, if we wanted to create white papers. Let's say we built a community around teacher leadership and we wanted to be able to construct white papers and do action research and do pieces that we then were going to share with policymakers. Well, Ning is a great social networking site. You know, it has videos and photos, and it's very Facebook-like, and, and that's great. But if that was our purpose in education, if teacher leadership and developing that kind, those kinds of skills, then there's some pieces that are lacking. Um, I thought maybe Drupal would be the answer. And so with the Teacher Leaders Network, I worked with them. Um, and we uh, built a Drupal site. Um, uh, working with Bill, a lot of you may know, um, who has uh, Funny Monkey. And we really thought hard. We really looked very closely. I did a lot. We did a lot of research kind of trying to figure out what are the tools set, what is it that we need to have for these teacher leaders to be able to work together and produce and connect and build trust and do all those kinds of things. And you know, even in what we built, as great as it is, you're still afterwards thinking, gosh, I wish you could do that. I wish it would do this. I wish it would do that. So I don't think it's a pat answer to be able to say to you, Ning has this, this, and this, and that's cool, but they don't have this, this, and this, because it really depends on what the uh, networking group or the community group is trying to accomplish um, with Ning, and to, depending on what they're going to need. Yeah, that's a, a great point, and I'm intrigued by a thought that's come to me as you've been talking, which is that m many of the really significant Web 2.0 tools that I use didn't start out being what they were. And they largely changed because the users changed them. Right. So, you know, Flickr wasn't a photo sharing site until the users said, hey, we're using this for photo sharing. And um, what was the one? I, oh, Twitter. I mean, I look at Twitter now, and I think of all the ways in which Twitter is different than it was originally intended. And so you know, in part, it seems like we need, to, we need to have some flexibility now to say, OK, so how do we build the platform or tool sets that allow people to show us how they want to use them. Yeah, I, you know, the two main constructs in my research that I've done is I've found that the two things when you're really thinking in terms of community is that they should grow naturally supporting socializing, the social networking aspect, social ability, and participation. You know, so evolving over time with co-creation of content that you build so that they can evolve so that you can, you know, repurpose generative aspects of the technology rather than just mechanical uses. But I also think uh, that communities, the research supports 
research that they really should include technology that's designed uh, to support the sociability and the knowledge sharing. And I think that's what's lacking in a lot of the social networking sites that educators are having to use is that sure we've got this great site that was built for social networking. We don't have sites that were really built to support the, uh, they have the sociability piece, but I don't think they've really been uh, thought through on how to help with that knowledge building piece, that deep inquiry, the reflection, the creation of action research, the critical friends aspect, um, the lesson planning and modeling and maybe lesson plan study kinds of aspects that could happen in a situated community of practice online amongst global educators, you know, in vast places where we could all learn such a great deal from each other if we just had the right um, the right tool set. I'm not going to make a plug for Learn Central, but I will say that it is built on Drupal. And I'll ping you directly because I'd love to show you, because I think we've addressed a number of these pieces, but I'm sure that you're going to look at it and see things that I would never have seen. So um, again, sort of within the context then of talking about educational social networking, um, Let's shift to administrators. Uh, Mike asked the question of the anxiety felt by administrators and IT personnel. Uh, how much is that blocking the adoption of this kind of technology? Well, I do think that what we're going to see, we, we are going to see that there is um, a certain amount of anxiety because of change. You know, change is always premature. That's things with powerful learning practice that we do is try to help people understand how to manage change and that, that in a time of fast-paced change, spiraling change, that if there was any gift that we could give educators, administrators, IT people, it's going to be on how to deal with the fact that we are reculturing, that transforming. I think, I think it comes down to helping them understand the difference, and this makes them panic because we do this in the boot camp sometimes, the difference between reforming and transforming, and that reforming is really where we take what's working and then we figure out how to take the innovations and we attach them to what's working. But, but you're, it's almost like you're trying to get you know, a square into a circle because it wasn't really the way the, the system is that's working really wasn't designed to take that innovation and attach it. So it, it, what we really need to do instead is really think about transforming the way that we do things. And um, it does. It redefines. It doesn't diminish our role as an IT person or an administrator. There will be an implementation dip, like Michael Fullen tells us about, that any time there's a learning curve. But the difference is, is that we truly will be changing education to the place by transforming, by using these technologies in very different ways than we are now, by reculturing, by rethinking education, by rethinking curriculum, by rethinking policy, and we will be, what we'll do is we'll be giving the kids that we're taking through, the babies that are under our watch right now, we'll be giving them a very powerful gift because they'll actually be prepared for their future instead of ours. You know, a lot of us when we think about futures, especially IT directors and administrators, um, you know, we think about the future being five-year replacement plan, you know, 10-year uh, strategic plan, and that's not the future for these kids. The future for these kids is 25, 30 years out, you know? And so if we're really going to be innovative, if we're really going to be preparing these kids, you know, uh, we, we're supposed to begin with the end in mind. And how do you begin with the end in mind when we have no idea what the end's going to be? So how do we reduce the anxiety of these folks? You know, you just have to um, put them in the kinds of environments themselves where they can see this kind of learning in action. Um, 
it does it require us to think through safety and you know different ways of doing things? Because is that IT director's you know butt going to be on the line? You betcha. And so, do we have it all figured out? Nope. It's building the airplane as we're flying it. But by bringing in a community or in a in a network a group of people to the table. Like if we decided and we handpicked IT directors and some administrators and teachers and teacher leaders and students and we brought them all into a community, an online community, and maybe we even made it global. We didn't just do it in our particular area because we wanted to bring new blood and new ideas into it. And the purpose of that was to think, let's talk about our strengths. Let's talk about possibilities, not problems. You know, often I think what IT directors and administrators do is we start with the problem. We say, oh, oh my gosh, what is it that's not working? What is going to go wrong? What are the barriers? What are the constraints? Even when we do our strategic planning, we always start with what are the barriers? What are the constraints? What if instead we started with the possibilities? And we sat down and said, okay, what is the end thing? What is it we want to create together? And then we started to operate from, okay, this is what we want it to look like. We truly want to be relevant in the lives of the students we're teaching and prepare them for their future, not ours. The what is the giftings we have at this table? Let's see, IT guy, you know how to do that, and you're really good at those kind of administrator, you can do that. And then taking that skill set, see what we could create and try it out. And then do some action research around that, and then share the findings with other people. And what works, help it to get scaled and replicated. I mean, I think that by giving them ownership, not into the problem, but to the possibilities, I think then we can really get on to the business of changing beliefs and dispositions and reculturing education to be what it needs to be. Okay, so we have three minutes left. Ray's asking, I have way more questions, way too many questions for me to keep asking, but so let's, let's uh, allow you to ask questions. Please feel free to raise your hand. Short amount of time, we can do some fast questions. Ray asks, will the President's YouTube contest help teachers to lobby their admins and ITs for access? What do you think, Cheryl? Where is that one? Where is he asking that? I'm looking. It's the second to last question. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm sorry, Ray, but I would have had to have seen, I'm, I don't know enough about that to be able to answer that question intelligently. He's having a YouTube contest, so that's pretty well, cool. Yeah, so he's, he's having students uh, who are 13 or older asking them to submit videos. And it was interesting to me that he's asking them to sub submit them to YouTube because clearly YouTube is a, is not an agreed upon platform for most schools to be open. You know, I, I, I have mixed feelings about this as I'm looking at it. Yes, I think that reverse mentorship is a very powerful thing and that by giving students authentic voice and helping them to realize their strengths and allow, being co-learners in the process with kids does a whole lot for their efficacy and it does a whole lot for who they become as a human being. So yeah, I'm all for that. But it's almost like we're taking a group of teachers have done an amazing job, IT directors as well, administrators as well, who have done an amazing job preparing kids for the 20th century. We, you know, when I see these reports on how education has failed and all that kind of stuff, I just get so ticked off because we've done a great job. Everybody in this room right now would have a story that we could tell about somebody's life that we've changed. We've made, we do make a difference, as cliche as it sounds. The problem is, is that they change the rules to the game. So there's, so there's something inside of me that makes me almost feel like it's a setup if we're going to have kids do things that are going to lobby for access. Instead, I would like it to be a collaborative kind of thing where we brought kids 
IT directors, administrators together to a table where they started to think about the possibilities of giving them access rather than, you know, lobbying for access? What if instead we did collaborative inquiry, constructive kinds of things where we work together with kids, their ideas and ours, to come up with uh, the kind of the kind of uh, solutions that are really going to solve the problem or to address the the possibilities? I think I think that would be a much better way to go about it than having people kind of hoodwink teachers by your, your last sentence dropped off there. Just instead of hoodwinking or, you know, and I, it's no disrespect to our president, but, you know, maybe if we worked on this problem together instead of just saying, you know, I'm going to lobby for access, give it to me now, damn it, you know, I think there's better ways to create change agents out of kids and have them be social activists around things that really matter by helping them, uh, nurturing and giving them authentic practice in developing their voice and developing their lobbying strategies instead of kind of setting up a us against you, we're going to lobby for this access right, you know, I guess that's what the way I feel about it. Carol, I can't imagine spending an hour with anybody else and enjoying it so much. Because I'm going to clap for you here. That's the clapping hand at the bottom oh. of the participant <laughs> window. So please Thanks clap so for much. Cheryl. Cheryl, uh, what a privilege to spend some time with you. It's sure fun to listen to you. It's sure fun to hear you articulate so clearly things that you've been thinking about for a long time that, that for me sort of sit at the edge of my consciousness that, that you've, you've drilled down deep on and have come to some good conclusions about. So again, our thanks to Learn Central and Illuminate. Uh, do remember uh, we have some fun events coming up, um, including John Seeley Brown, who got some some good time tonight, uh, and uh, SRI on educational social networking. If these are topics of interest, there will be a survey that pops up when you exit the Illuminate room. We ask you that if you are able to, you please fill it out. It helps us to know if we're doing a good job or what we need to change. So Cheryl, thanks so much again. I sure appreciate it. What a, what a what a privilege. Thanks for having me. I had a great time and. Um, Anytime you guys that are in the room want to collaborate around um, these ideas or maybe come up with some ways that we can use community or networks to truly help to reculture education, please contact me. I'd be interested in your ideas and working with you. Thanks. Thanks, Cheryl. So Sandra, you asked how you can access the recording. As soon as the recording is done, it gets posted to futureofeducation.com and is also posted in Learn Central at the event. So wherever you saw the event, you're likely to find the recording. Uh, and there are lots of fun recordings up at futureofeducation.com and now the new series, uh, conversations.net, which really doesn't focus on education as much as just the impact of the Internet on culture and society. Okay, that was really terrific. I'm going to uh, let you know that in order for the recording to process, we have to all leave the room. That doesn't mean you have to stop a conversation you're having. But if you're done, just go ahead and go to File and Exit and, and leave. Um, and uh, sure appreciate your being here tonight. Well, that would be that would be really great. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I keep uh, it's in my notebook. I have all these notes about holding that kind of a conference. Um, you know, I just don't want to compete with other conferences or make anybody feel badly. But I think what you're getting at, this kind of core sense of really restructuring, is is what I'd be interested in. Yeah, just to, just to reiterate, I'm not about restructuring. I'm about transforming. I think that you know restructuring is probably going to be the more palatable approach for people who are terrified 
of um, you know a total generative kind of experience um, in education. But I think schools really, really well, let them come full circle. Let them go back to the days of you know Socrates. Um, I think that schools should be places we go to uh, to exchange ideas and collaborate and discuss and to build and to you know do the kinds of things that you do to learn in a hands-on way. And then the real learning, the kind of passive learning, the the knowledge of that that uh, Cochrane Smith Little talks about is that you know should take place in a in a home setting, maybe virtually online. And I think that would be cool. Also, now you're talking my language. That's so funny um, because I've I, I've looked at you know in terms of thinking about these interviews and and thinking about education. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is that we've you know our schools have largely reflected the kind of passive um, consumer nature of a broadcast media society. And so it seems as though the, the changes that are taking place, the high levels of participation, are both at the same time going to bring us back to previous ways of doing it and also help us invent new ways. And, that, and restructuring, of course, was a bad choice of words there. But that we have an opportunity and we'll probably need to kind of completely redesign the experience. So what if we, what if we didn't have another conference? What if instead we got rid of the 20th century construct we have for conferences and in-services and workshops, and we rethought that as well? As long as we're reculturing education, let's re reculture professional development. Well, so I think to some degree, let, let me let me propose that EduBloggerCon and the NECC Unplugged, and now these live sessions, do that, and so. Um, you know, my first thought has been, can we use this online medium to provide a way to hold this kind of an event that's, that, uh, in fact, reflects the very changes that we're talking about? And, and one of the things I'll, I'll tell you kind of candidly is, I don't think there should be a selection process for speakers. I think, there, I think anybody should be able to propose to present, and the filtering takes place at the, the, when the decision is made whether or not I want to attend. Yeah, I think that, that's that's a valid perspective. I know with K-12 online, we did uh, with not K-12 online, we tried to do that. It wasn't as popular, but I think that a lot of that has to do with because of the change, because of the unconferency feel it gave. So those that wasn't as successful as we thought it would be by letting anybody speak and not just you know anybody who wanted to go to the time and effort to uh, create a presentation. However, you know. Do you remember those guys, those chemistry guys or science guys, that they said, you know, we've got school backwards. We should be doing homework at school, and we should be doing the learning at home. And so what they did is they took all their lectures, the part where the kids are sitting there very passively while they're lecturing, and they put those with different resource materials and had the kids watch that at home and interact with that at home. And then they came to school, and they did very engaged discussions and did their homework, and they actually learned by doing once they got to school. What? If, yeah, the teach naked thing. What if? We did PD like that. What if what if we did instead of going to a conference where you attend session after session after session after session, um, passively learning ideas are coming up in your head. You're wanting so bad to talk, but you can't. Where you, like we've seen at different things we've gone to, the real action is at the bloggers cafe or you know it's wherever people are and some people skip the sessions just to be able to do that connecting and that collaborating. What if we did the idea generation, the teaching, the passive kinds of things in a virtual space and then the face-to-face uh, -face piece was strictly about, okay, 
here are the ideas I have, now let's work together to create a collective action piece or let's work together to create some kind of new entity that's going to be um, a reculturing piece in education and truly is going to implement what I sat at home and learned about. So one way to do that would be to take you know, sort of the neat set of contexts that are coming out of this interview series and, and possibly do that as, as a part of futureofeducation.com. Say, okay, so you know, once a month we're going to do a session like that. There'll be some advanced reading materials and the ideas to come together for collective action. Would that work? Yeah, I think it would. I think that um, if you could figure out a way to do even your presentations ahead of time, not just these kinds of things because that goes, flies in the face of what you said, that anybody should be able to present not just the people you asked for an interview. But yeah, if you could rethink about how to do that, I think it would be a very powerful construct. I think while if we truly want to produce teachers who do things differently in the classroom, then we've got to change teacher preparation and we've got to change teacher professional development. So that's a really fun idea. Okay, I'm going to certainly sleep on that one. I've got to run. Cheryl, you're just the doll. You, you did a terrific job and uh, really, really fun to have you as a part of this. Appreciate it. I had fun. See Me you later. Too. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.